Genesis chapter 4. In 2015, the Oregon shooter who killed nine people at Yumqua Community College on Thursday reportedly singled out Christians for slaughter. One witness told CNN that the shooter said to one student as he fired at her, because you're a Christian, you're going to see God in just about one second. In 2013, Tony Miano was held for around six hours, had his fingerprints and DNA taken, and was questioned about his faith after delivering a sermon about sexual immorality on a London street. A woman who was out shopping called the police to complain that she was offended, prompting two officers to be dispatched to arrest him. Now, what was the thing that offended the woman? Tony Miano called homosexuality a sin. In 2017, an Oregon court found two cake bakery owners guilty of discriminating against a gay couple by refusing to make them a wedding cake in which violates Oregon law. They're fined for the crime, $135,000. What each of these cases tell us is we are living in a world that's hostile to Christianity. We're living in a world that believes that Jesus never existed, that the Bible is a bunch of made-up stories, and we are believing in a God who was immoral, unjust, and unloving. There was a tension that exists between the world and the church, if you haven't noticed. And because of this tension, Christians are now starting to become more postmodern and liberal in their theology. Instead of renewing our minds, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 12, Christians are conforming more and more to the image of this world. It's not out of the norm nowadays to walk into a church and feel like you're at a nightclub, or if not at a nightclub, at a, at a really cool event. The worship and song is similar to a rock concert. The way the preacher dresses is similar to a mannequin at Forever 21. The message that's delivered is similar to a motivational speech, just spiritualized. And that's what mainstream Christianity is nowadays. A Christianized version of the ideas and thoughts and philosophies of the world. Instead of living in this tension between the world and the church, Christians are allowing the world to determine how we are to think about Christianity. The world is, is, is telling us how we are to view the Bible, how we are to live out the implications of what the Bible has commanded us to do. The Christians are allowing the world to teach us who God is and what Jesus Christ has done on the behalf of sinners. Saints, in the midst of such tension, we must remember this one truth, and that is we are not of this world, that we are not of this world. We have to remember what our identity is in this world. And Peter said it best in 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Peter describes Christians as aliens and, and pilgrims in this world. 
those who are just passing through. We are temporary residents in this city of man. And that's what the Christian life is. A life lived, as theologians would say, in the two kingdoms. A life that's lived in the tension that exists between these two kingdoms. And saints, this tension that exists between these two kingdoms is not a new development in Christianity. People didn't wake up one morning in the 20th century and and start to hate God and start to hate Christianity and, and hate Christians for loving God and serving God. This is not a new development. But this tension between the world and the church finds its origins in Genesis chapter 4. We begin Genesis chapter 4 with two seeds, both from the same woman, however, members of two different families. Cain, the one who's the father, is the devil, and Abel, the one who is righteous before God. Cain, the one who is self-righteous and brings an an unacceptable sacrifice to the Lord, and, and we have Abel, the one who obeys God and brings to God the firstborn of his flock. Last week, we examined the vicious murder of Abel by the hands of his brother Cain. Now, where do we go from here? The seed of the serpent has just killed the seed of the woman. And it seems like once again, we're back to square one. Once again, all hope is lost. But as we will see today, all hope is never lost with God. God will provide another righteous seed. This morning, we will again see two seeds, which ultimately represent two kingdoms, two lines of families. The seed of Cain, which represents the city of man, the world, and the seed of Seth, which represents the kingdom of God. So if you have a Bible, will you please stand and turn in Genesis chapter 4. We will be concluding the book of, or the chapter 4 of Genesis this morning. Genesis chapter 4, verse 17 to 26 says this. 17 to 26. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch bore Irad, and to Irad fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives, and the name of one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who played the larry and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments and bronze and iron. And the sister Tubal-Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. The wives of Lamech listened to what I say. I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed me for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born. And he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. You may be seated. This morning, saints, I have just two points for you. Number one, the city of man. Number two, 
the kingdom of God. Number one, the city of man. And number two, the kingdom of God. Let's look at our first point, the city of man, the city of man. Currently in the story of redemptive history, Cain has just murdered his brother Abel, right? Out of rage and anger to God, Cain comes up with a plan to kill one of God's image bearers. If he can't get to God, he's going to get God's righteous one. He's going to take out Cain, Abel. He takes out his frustration, not on a stranger, not on a wanderer, but he takes out his frustration and anger on his own flesh and blood, his brother Abel. When God confronts Cain about his crime, Cain doesn't seem to care what he has done. He lies to God, saying things like, I don't know where my brother is. When Cain knew exactly where his brother is, he left his brother in the field, bloody and dead. He has an attitude to God, saying things like, am I my brother's keeper? In other words, God, that's a dumb question. I'm not, my, I'm not Abel's father, and I'm not Abel's mother. I don't know where he's at. I'm not, I'm not his watchman. He has self-pity on himself once God pronounces judgment on him, saying things like, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me away today, away from the ground. And from your face, I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. God then puts a mark on Cain that carries within it a twofold purpose. For one, it functions to protect Cain from being killed from others. And two, it reminds Cain that he still sits under God's curse and judgment. That even though I'm protecting you, Cain, don't get it twisted. That you still are under my divine wrath. We ended last week's sermon with verse 16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The one who was promised to bring his people back into the Garden of Eden is driven further away from the Garden of Eden. Cain leaves the presence of the Lord just as his father, Adam, left the presence of the Lord. Not just physically, but spiritually. He is distant from God. Cain is now a wanderer on the earth. The ground will no longer produce any food for him to eat. This is Cain's life post-murder and sentence. This is the life of Cain, a fugitive, a marked man, a cursed man, a man that's just awaiting his time to die. You would think that that's how the story ends with Cain, right? I mean, no food can be produced for him. He's sent out from the presence of the Lord to be a wanderer and a fugitive. He's worried about someone killing him. But that's not how the story ends with Cain. Although Cain is cursed, he will not go down without a fight. Although Cain is cursed, he will not go down without a fight. So we begin our verses this morning in the same way we begin the beginning of chapter 4. Someone is pregnant. Look at verse 17, if you will. Cain again, or Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. Enoch. In spite of God pronouncing to Cain that he will be a fugitive on the earth all the days of his life, God provides to Cain a wife. 
Now, one might ask, who in the world did Cain marry and get pregnant? Who in the world did Cain marry and get pregnant? Was it a girl who lived on the other side of the world? And as Cain was wandering, he met her, he liked her, he married her, and they had a kid? No, it's, I think it's safe to say and assume that Cain married and impregnated either one of his sisters, one of his nieces, or maybe one of his cousins. Now, before you say, that's blasphemy, Leviticus 18, God says um, that we aren't to involve ourselves in incest marriages. We aren't to take for ourselves uh, wives of, uh, that are our relatives. And as sick as that may sound, we have to remember the period that we currently are studying through. And the situation of marrying a close blood relative was a temporary necessity that, God, that was permitted, but also superintended by God until such a time when the population had grown to a stage that wouldn't require relatives who have sexual intimacy with one another. And mind you, even though that question is a good question to ask, it's not a question that we should put all of our stock into. Who did Cain marry? Who was it? Who was this girl? Because Moses is not concerned with giving us details on who Cain married, but rather Moses is interested in the theology behind Cain's marriage. What does this really mean? What is, what is Moses saying here? Cain's marriage tells us less about Cain and who he married and more about God and his character. We see here God's mercy is still with Cain. God's curse on Cain is not entirely removed. God's original blessing to be fruitful and multiply. We see here even down to the reprobate line, God gives blessings. God gives grace. God gives mercy. Despite whatever mark that was on Cain and him being cast out by God, God allowed Cain to enjoy the blessings of marriage and children. That's, that's what theologians would call common grace. So Cain has a son. And verse 17 says his name was Enoch. Enoch. Now, this is not the Enoch that we will be introduced to in a few weeks. This is a different Enoch. This is Cain's son. This is from Cain's line. And saints, there's an interesting meaning to Enoch's name. There's a very interesting meaning to Enoch's name. His name means initiating or establishing things. That's important to note. His name means initiating or establishing things. Now, the meaning of Enoch's name is important to note because this was exactly what Cain was trying to do after being exiled and cursed. He refuses to be a wanderer and a nobody on the earth. Cain still believes that he's a somebody. He still believes that he has a purpose in life. So Cain naming his son Enoch tells us more than just Cain has a son and he gives him a cool name and, and, and that name Enoch has a cool meaning. But there's great significance to Cain naming his son Enoch. It reveals Cain's heart and mind at this current time. It reveals what he's thinking. It reveals his plans. 
the birth of Enoch wasn't Cain now finally trying to obey the God's command of to be fruitful and multiplying. He didn't say, well, let me get a wife and wife, you know, God commanded Adam in the garden to be fruitful and multiply. And I, I think we are to obey that command. Cain is not doing that. But it's the beginnings of Cain's attempt to reverse the curse that was laid upon him. The birth of, of Cain's son, Enoch, is, Cain's, is the beginnings of Cain's attempt to reverse the curse that God laid upon him. Remember the curse on Cain was the ground would not produce any food for him. You guys remember? In Cain's mind, he thinks that, it, well, if I can't produce food from the ground, then maybe my son will. Maybe, maybe I can have a family that can do for me what I can't do on my own. The birth of Cain's son Enoch shows us that Cain set out to establish his own little empire. He set out to establish and create his own space in God's world. He set out to establish a city that's independent of God's law and God's agenda. So verse 17 tells us, when he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. So he builds for himself a city. And if I can imagine what that city was like, if I can imagine what that city looked like, I would think it would be a likened to a military city, a city to protect himself from those who desire to kill Cain. Cain Cain's city anticipates and is a model of the later city that we will study, Babel. It's a blueprint of what this later wicked city Babel will be like, a city built in defiance of God's command to fill the earth and subdue it. That was the problem with Cain. Let me build for myself and create for, my, for myself a city. And let me have family. And we're not going to spread out. We're going to build our kingdom and have our empire here. We're going to stay local. We're going to stay within our own boundary. This city, just like Babel, is a city that attempts to rule itself rather than a city that's ruled under God. What we see in the building of Cain's city is this is Cain's way of showing that he's still unrepentant. It's Cain's way of showing that he still has not received the warnings from God. He still has the unrepentant heart. We see in the building of Cain's city that this is Cain's way of striking back at the judgment of God. Doesn't want to, he doesn't want to be dependent upon God's mercy for his protection or safety. Remember what the, remember what the mark, what the, what the significance of the mark was to Cain. It was a protection plan. It was a promise that God would protect Cain all the days of his life. But in the building of the city, Cain says that I don't want God's mercy and protection. I can protect myself. He doesn't want to be wandering around, exposed in the open, counting on God to preserve and spare his life from avengers. Cain wanted to take his future and security into his own hands. So he has a son, and he builds for himself a city. He creates a city by which he attempts to manage his curse. Let me manage what this curse is upon my life. 
but not only manage it, let me control this. He attempts to manage his curse and control his circumstances and guard his own back. Cain shows that he still does not trust God to make good on his word. Up, even up to this point, Cain is still showing defiance to God, saying, God, I do not trust you worth a dime. He refuses to be a rootless wanderer. So in defiance to God, he builds for himself a city. And saints, this is important to note, this city is the beginnings of what we call the city of man. This is the origins of what we call the world. This is it. This is where the world, the city of man, has its beginnings. A place that wants to live apart from God's law and God's rule. In addition to Cain building a city for his family, he names the city after his son Enoch. In rebellion against God and resisting his own curse, he establishes a city and sets it up as a monument to his own family. His own legacy and his own name. Very similar to the world that we live in now, is it not? We have how many buildings and towns and streets and schools are named after men. Men that did great things. That glory and that glorify what the, man, what the hands of men have created rather than acknowledging that God has allowed them to create. We praise men every day for what they have built and we name things after them. Now from the world standards, Cain is a wonderful dad though. I mean, really think about it. I mean, he's a man who has built a city. So what does the world call that? He's an innovator. He's a creator. He's a dreamer. He builds this city to protect his family. So what does that world call him? He's a man's man. He protects his family. He's a good man. He's a good father. He even, and on top of all of that, he, he names the city after his son, what a great dad. You couldn't ask for more. Now, those things are not bad. There's just one problem. It's a godless city that has a godless, with a godless motivation. Cain didn't build this city to glorify God. He built this city to glorify himself, to glorify his family, to glorify what he has achieved out of his own hands. Very similar to what he did when he presented to God that offering and sacrifice. Let me bring to you, God, what I have created and, and, and established and grown from my own hands. Cain is so self-centered. This city of man, this city that Cain uh, established was Cain's attempt to replace the fellowship that was lost with God with the fellowship of family life, earthly security and success. Hear me, saints. This is the city of man that we currently are living in. A place that is out for his own selfish desires and personal gains. America that, that cares more about its own image of being the, the home of the free and the lamb of the brave than God's image and what he has prescribed for us to obey in his law. The city of man that judges a father's success by what houses his family is living in, what sports teams his children play for, what college his kids are going to. Saints, that's worldly success. That's earthly success. Parents, listen to me. Never judge your success as a parent by the amount of things you buy and provide for your children. But rather judge your success as a parent by the amount of truth you teach your children and the amount of truth that you live by in front of your children. 
the seed of man that cares less about one's relationship and obedience to God and cares more about our relationship with our family and our obedience to Caesar's law, not God's law. They care more about how's your family relationship than rather how is your God relationship? God is being replaced with this idea of family and how perfect and how uh, comfortable it's supposed to be. How there's never supposed to be any problems. Saints, I'm all for families that, that are tight-knit and together. But never think because your family is all good and tight-knit and loving that their souls is all good and right before God. Just because they love each other doesn't mean that they love God. It doesn't mean that they're going to get into heaven. Praise God if you have a family that cares for each other and loves each other. But you should weep over each family member that will not bow their knee to Christ. When's the last time you've done that? When's the last time you thought about your own cousin, your own brother, maybe your mother, who will not bow their knee to Christ? Family relationship does not take priority over God relationship. And it's sad how Christians now want to replace the church and going to church with family vacations, family day, family activities. The city of man praises themselves for their own achievements. Just think about how many award shows we have now. Everything's an award show. Rather than redirecting any glory they receive to God, the world is so selfish, and Christians are no better. We are just as selfish in our own achievements. And we think that because we are, we are Christians and we say that we're doing this for the glory of God, that actually means that we're actually doing something significant. Soladeo Gloria has now become everyone's favorite tattoo. And when I see people who have that, too, that tattoo and when I see people who love to say that, I want to ask them, do you actually know what that means? Do you know the amount of blood that was spilled in the Reformation for you to be able to say that without being burned at the stake? Do you know what Paul meant when he said that? For the glory of God alone is a dangerous thing to mark on yourself, but saints, it's a more dangerous thing to say. It's not a slogan. It's not a cool reform catchphrase. It's truth that we live and stand on. It's a lifestyle. It's a way of life. It's a worldview. It's detaching yourself from all praise and glory that you can muster up to yourself. And saints, we think that because we are Christians, we aren't like the world. Because we know something about God that we are not like the world. But my gosh, saints, at times we sure do resemble it. We sure do resemble the world. And Cain City is a picture of the world that we currently are living in. And as Cain City began to grow, his line continued to increase. So we have a city that's being grown, but also we have this family tree that's being grown as well. Look at verse 18 to 22. To Enoch bored Irad, and to Irad fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was a father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who played the lyre and the pipe. 
Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments in bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Nama. So here we see from this genealogy, God allowed Cain to have a succession of generations after him. And some of them have made great contributions to human society and life. We have Jabal, who is the father of those who dwell in tents and livestock, which means he helped those who have sheep and other animals move from one location to the other. Jabal was a, uh, was a ranger. He helped those who have sheep not stay in one location, but move to a different location, a better location. We have Jubal, who is the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. All musical musicians have uh, find their origin in Jubal. He was the one who created music. There's Tubal Cain, who is also known as the forger of all instruments in bronze and iron, which means that he was a toolmaker. He was the one who created weapons. But it's interesting with Tubal Cain how he's named after his great great grandfather Cain. And what's Tubal Cain's occupation? He builds weapons. He builds wep- uh, tools for people to farm. That might have been what Cain killed, used to kill his brother Abel. Cain's city is getting bigger. And Cain's city is expanding. And his descendants are actually leading in the way uh, in a number of different areas of, of technical and social and artistic development. And saying there's nothing wrong with these men investing or inventing these great things that society has benefited from. I mean, we benefit from these things as well. However, what's wrong with these advances in society is the motivation behind it. Their focus is on technology and the arts, and how they can get society to advance and get better rather than focusing on God. We don't read these men inventing for the glory of God, but rather for the glory of themselves and their society. This is another mark of the city of man, a city that's self-centered and out for its own personal gain, and in their advancements in technology and the arts, the world believes that somehow they're setting themselves up for the future. We read it all the time. Read in the newspapers that if this invention goes through, that we are on the verge to do something great. The city of man believes that by advancing in all these things that the future will be bright for them. The great hope of the world, the great hope of this city of man is through technological advances and new inventions, the future looks bright and promising. But friends, that couldn't be any further from the truth. The future for the city of man is not one of growth, but one of decline. The future of the world is not bright, but it's dark. It's one of judgment, not promise. That is why the Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 3, to set our minds on the things above, not on the things of the earth. Not on how we can better ourselves now, but by what we can create with our own hands. Saints, we must have a healthy obsession with the heavenly city that awaits us, not this earthly one that we currently are living in. Not this, this as C.S. Lewis would say, these mud pies in the slums, but, but we are to have this focus and this worldview and this vision of that heavenly holiday city that awaits us. Now, don't get me wrong. 
human achievements and inventions are a gift from God. And human inventions might advance society, but saints, that doesn't advance the sinner closer to God. Only our mediator, Jesus Christ, can do that. Humans will never be able to invent a new way to get to heaven. There's only one way to the Father, and that is through Jesus Christ. So as we see in this city that Cain has produced, that God has allowed Cain to produce, the civilization is growing and producing in the, in the realm of arts and technology and making lives easier. But along with growth in people and culture, there's also a growth in sin. So not only do we see advancement in technology and the arts and all these things, but we also see advancement and we also see an escalation of sin. And we see that in Cain's great, great, great grandson, Lamech. Verse 23 and 24 says, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me and a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech is seventy-sevenfold. Out of all the people mentioned in Cain's genealogy, Moses gives Lamech the most attention. And the reason is because Lamech is from the seventh generation of Adam. If you know anything about the number seven, it means completeness, fullness. What we see is this evil has come to its completeness and fullness in this great, great, great grandson, Lamech. If you want to see how far and, and how great and deep men has fallen, look at Lamech. As I said, Lamech is the great, great, great grandson of Cain. And out of all those from Cain's line up to this point, it's Lamech that resembles his great, great, great grandfather the most. If there's anyone that identifies with Cain, it's Lamech. Again, verse 23 says, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah. What's wrong with that? Here we see Lamech is the first polygamist in history. Already off the bat, we see how rebellious Lamech is. The marriage union is to be, to between, is to be between one, one man and, and one wife. Lamech, like Cain, distorts God's command and takes for himself two wives. I mean, saints, you can barely handle one wife. How in the world are you going to handle two wives? Verse 23 goes on to say, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech is seventy-sevenfold. Now, it's important to note this. This speech by Lamech is known as the Song of the Sword. The Song of the Sword. And verses 23 and 24 should not be understood as Lamech speaking to his wives. So don't think he's saying, wives of Lamech, listen to me. He's not talking to them as if, in the same way I'm talking to you. But rather, he's singing to his wives. This is a song that Lamech is singing to his wives. Lamech is the first songwriter. And 
It's a song that's a celebration of Lamech's arrogance and brutality. He sings to his wives what he has done. He says, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. Lamech, like his grandfather Cain, has killed a man. But unlike Cain, Lamech takes pride in his crime. Unlike Cain, Lamech boasts about it. I mean, to take it a step further, he writes a song about it. And he sings it to his wives in arrogance. Evidently, a young man had assaulted him, and in self-defense, he says, I killed him. I killed him. In arrogance, he goes on to say, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. What is, Cain, what is Lamech doing here? He's making a mockery of God's promise to protect Cain. Saying that if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's revenge will be 77-fold. Here, Lamech puts words in God's mouth, who's never even said those things to Lamech. But these statements by Lamech are really as a kind of a taunt, and it's a dare to anyone who might consider coming after him for what he has done. He's issuing a challenge to anyone who's brave enough to avenge the young man's life that he took away. If you want revenge for this young man's life, then come at me. Let me see what you got. Lamech's attitude is the attitude of those who dwell in the city of man. The world says forgiveness gets you nothing. Forgive people. That gets you nothing in life. You have to be cutthroat. It's vengeance that wins. It's revenge that, that wins. It's interesting. The city of man says if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. The world says if one strikes me seven times... I'll strike them 77 times harder. And to many of us, that only seems fair, right? That only seems right. But friends, the Bible warns us against seeking revenge and vengeance. 1 Peter 3 9, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving instead a blessing, a blessing instead for you were called for that very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Romans 12, 9, beloved, never avenge yourselves. But hear this. Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And consider the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 18, verse 21 and 22. Very similar to what Lamech says. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my, often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. The Bible teaches us to forgive our avengers, not seek vengeance on them. If one has stricken you down seven times, you are to forgive them 77 times, the Bible says. Friends, vengeance doesn't show your strength. Revenge doesn't show your strength. It only shows how weak you really are. Saints, remember this. The first to forgive, the first to say I'm sorry, the first to let it go is always the bravest. Always the bravest. The first to forgive is always the stronger one. Lamech's song reveals how powerful he thinks he is. 
When Lamech says, if Cain revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech is seventy-sevenfold. These words by Lamech show us the problem that's plagued humanity ever since the fall. And that is the temptation to be like God. And this temptation did not stop in Genesis chapter 3. Lamech here is shaking his fist at God. He's saying, I am more powerful than God. And saints, this is the main hallmark of the city of man. This is the main hallmark of the world. The world that tries its best to remove God from its throne and replace him with themselves. Replace God off his throne with family life, with society, with culture, with technological, social, artistic advancements, with new inventions. Ultimately, Lamech shows us how far fallen man has fell. He shows us how sin has quickly escalated and intensified. The question I have for you, saints, is, are you a part of this city? Is this the city that you identify yourself with? How much time are you giving into this city? How much do you love this city? 1 John 2.15 tells us, do not love the world or things of the world. If, anything, if anyone loves the world, the, father, the love of the Father is not in him. This text doesn't mean that Christians are to isolate themselves like the Amish do and cut themselves off from everything and anything that this world produces. But it means do not love this world as a whole. Do not love the ideas and philosophies of this world because they are sinful. Do not love this world as this is your home. As if this is as good as it gets, saints, if if that is your belief, then you're an atheist. Because that's atheism. An atheist says that this is all that we are going to have, and this is as good as it gets. So let's stock up on all the things that we can have. And then you're materialist. Despite what the heretic Joe Osteen says, you'll never have your best life now. As long as you're a Christian, the world will never let you have your best life now. It's those Christians who compromise doctrine and water down the gospel. It's those Christians who have their best life now. But those Christians who stand on truth and who not waver the gospel and the truth about God and how he has revealed himself in his word, it's those Christians who will be persecuted. It's those Christians who long for the city that's to come. Saints, your best life now will be spent in a different world, not in this city of man. And until we reach our eternal home, we are to live in this world, but not be lovers of this world. We are to be lovers of a different world, a far better city, a kingdom that has no end. Which leads to our last point, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. The story of Genesis 4 up to this point has been one of sadness and darkness, has it not? I mean, it really has. We've seen how evil and sinful man have become in Cain and Lamech. We've seen Cain build for himself a mini empire, that, a place that's drive, thriving in cultural advancement. But it's a city that's going nowhere. It's a city that's godless. It's a city that refuses to obey God's law and his commands. Friends, the world that that Genesis 4 presents to us up to this point, it's one of darkness and hopeless, is it not? 
But as the great saying of the Reformation goes, after darkness, light. After darkness, saints, light always prevails. In the midst of darkness, chapter 4 ends with a small shining light. Look at verse 25, if you will. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Glory be to God for that verse alone. We end Genesis chapter 4, saints, with how we begin Genesis chapter 4. Eve gives birth to another child. But not just any other child. Eve gives birth to a boy in which she names Seth. Now, it seems like Eve knows that Seth is different from the rest of the children she's had up to this point. Again, she says in verse 25, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Eve knows that this one that has been appointed to me is not like Cain. It's like the one that Cain murdered, Abel. Eve knows that in spite of her excitement and expectation of her firstborn Cain, she knows now, she better know now, that Cain has, was not the promised seed of the woman. That Cain was not the one that was to come to redeem his people. But in God's faithfulness, he provides to Eve another child. That is why Eve says, God has appointed for me another offspring. And when Eve says another offspring, that's another word for seed. And the original word in the Hebrew is seed. So it should read, God has appointed for me another seed. Eve uses this word, but it's interesting because that word seed is the same word that God used in Genesis 3.15. Remember, the Lord said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the hill. There's something different about this boy. And Eve knows that there's something different about this son. This boy named Seth may not be the scroll-crushing seed of the woman, but he is. But the promised seed, the scroll-crushing seed of the woman, will come from Seth's line. This may not be the promised one, but the promised one will come from Seth's line. And that's exactly what the Bible says. We read in Luke 3, the genealogy from Adam to Christ. Verse 23 says, Jesus, when he began his ministry was about 30 years of age, being the son as was supposed of Joseph. And in this genealogy, Luke traces the line of Jesus from Joseph all the way down to verse 38. That says something very interesting. Verse 38, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Seth, whose name means appointed one, was graciously appointed by God to be in the godly line of Jesus Christ. 
Seth is indeed no ordinary son. He shows that God is still faithful to the promise he made in Genesis 3.15. The birth of Seth shows that evil will not win at the end. The birth of Seth shows that the Messiah will come. And the birth of Seth shows that the serpent's head will be crushed. Saints, we must pause here and praise God for his faithfulness. We must praise God here and give glory to him alone for showing to us in Seth that the one who was promised is coming soon. The birth of Seth shows us that when the hope of men fails, the work of God does not. The work of God continues to move forward. And saints, this is what we must remember as citizens of this kingdom of God. That although we dwell in the city of man that's full of wickedness and darkness, we have a promise by God that is still yet to come. Just as the Old Testament saint, we're looking forward to the promised Messiah. We too are looking forward to the return of our Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. The city of man thinks that by advancing in technology and science and the arts, that we as a society have a bright future. But saints, those are empty expectations. And there is no hope in those things. What promise is there a better, of a better society in any of those things? They're empty. We as Christians, we as those who are citizens of the city of God, but dwell in the city of man, have a better hope, a better expectation. But how do we know that these things will come to pass? How do we know that the Messiah will come? Revelation 22, 12, 13 tells us, It gives us the answer. From the very lips of the one who is to come, he says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each of those for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning of the end. Just as the birth of Seth gave hope to those who dwell in the city of man, the words of Jesus Christ gives us hope Thus, us Christians who dwell in this city of man. And finally, saints, we end chapter 4 with verse 26. To Seth also as a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Cain taught his children how to grow crops and make use of their tools. Seth taught his children who God is. In Cain's line, they call upon themselves. In Seth's line, they call upon the Lord. This is the hope that Genesis 4 leaves us with. People began to call upon the name of the Lord, which has a number of different meanings to it. It means that people are beginning to worship God. It means that that people are beginning to evangelize about the Lord. It means that people are beginning to preach about the Lord. Saints, in a world that follows the seed of the serpents, we ought to be known as the descendants of Seth were known by the God we worship, not by the self-worship of the descendants of Cain and the things that they crave. If there's anything that distinguishes us as a people, it should be that we are those who call upon the name of the Lord, not upon the name of Caesar, not upon the name of America. 
Saints, America one day will be no more. The stars and stripes will bleed one day. And there will be judgment for those who dwell and who are part and who love the city of man. As we dwell in the city of man, let's proclaim the gospel of good news to all people, saints. Let us preach the light of Jesus Christ in all dark places. Saints, in this city of man, we're not called to redeem culture and society. We aren't, we aren't called to partake in God's, we are called to partake in God's work of redeeming people out of the culture and out of the society. This is the world, this world to us is a wilderness. This world is not as good as it gets. So what would our future home look like? Saints, don't you wish that you can feel and see what our future home will be like one day? Don't you wish that God will give us a glimpse of what heaven will be like one day? So you don't have to wish, friends. God has given us a picture of what that fully realized kingdom of God will be like every Lord's Day Sabbath. As we travel Monday through Saturday in this wilderness, the Lord has given us one day of rest. A day that is to be to us an oasis. A place where we can come and rest our feet from our sojourning and receive hope and encouragement and fellowship. A place where we can come and receive our spiritual food and the preached word. A place where we can come and communicate with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ through the Lord's Supper. Saints, the church is where we come and remove our thoughts of this wicked world and look forward to the delight that we will enjoy in the age that's to come. Saints, the church, the Sabbath, is an expression on earth of what heaven will be like and what that consummated kingdom of God will look like. A people who gather to call upon the name of the Lord. In closing, saints, I want to leave you with one application of encouragement. Yes, this life we live in the city of man is very, very, very hard. Being a Christian while living in this sinful world is the most difficult thing to do. At times, I know it seems like the city of man is here and heaven is so far away. You might even ask yourself, why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? Why am I going through this when my pagan neighbor is not? At times it may seem like the problems we go through while living in this city of man are just too much to bear. We know that our Lord is, was coming soon and, and we know we believe that he will return, but our sin and what we go through can cause us to be impatient. It can blur our vision of God. Saints, if that, if that is you, I want you to remember one thing. And it's the one thing that Genesis chapter 4 and what our verses present to us. And that is, God is faithful. God is faithful. When it seemed like all hope was lost for Adam and Eve, God made a promise of a seed that will come and crush the head of the serpents. When, when Eve was living in a world of darkness, when, his, when his, her son Abel was murdered in cold blood, God provides another seed in Seth. When it seemed like all there was in the world was wickedness and sinfulness, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. 
as we move on through redemptive history, when the children of Israel were hopeless, God sent Moses to redeem them out of slavery. Saints, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, the eternal Son of God became flesh. And on this earth, he lived a perfect life that you could never live. On the cross, he satisfied the wrath of God that you could have never done. And on the third day, he rises from the grave to show that his perfect sacrifice has been accepted and that your justification will never, ever, 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 ever be overturned. Saints, as you move through life in the city of man, hold on to the faithfulness that God has shown to you in Jesus Christ and have hope, a great hope in the future kingdom and the crown that awaits you. Let's pray.